This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today I speak with Brendan Leonard, the man behind Semirad. There are tons of different ways you can actually visualize data, but very few of them are understood by adults who are not taking like college classes right. in that subject. I started following Brendan's Semirad feed on Instagram several years ago. It's got a playful sensibility and an uncanny knack for making you consider the ordinary or obvious from a different perspective. It's really one of my favorite things. I connected with Brendan through some of our mutual friends after learning about his recent move back to Missoula. We're happy to have him in our community, and I'm happy for you to learn more about Brendan and his work right now. Brendan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Otherwise known as Semi-Rad, that was, that was my entry point to your work a couple of years ago, and it's been super fun learning that you are now a member of the Missoula community, or, or, or a yet again member of the Missoula community. This is not your first time around here. Yeah, let's start there. What was your first uh, entry point to, to Montana? I know it's played a significant role in your life. Boy, I had... You know, I'd grown up in Iowa and gone to college there and um, barely graduated in 2001 um, and then had a series of, uh, <laughs> I was basically my, my introduction to Montana the summer before I came here, I went to rehab for substance abuse for five weeks, spent a week in jail and then moved to Missoula to go to grad school to get a master's degree in journalism. And so were, were your problems with alcohol sort of like through a through college thing or like, how did that kind of become, get to the point where you had to kind of get some help? Well, I, I think when, I think in addiction circles, they often describe it as first you have fun and then you have fun with problems and then you just have problems. And I went through the whole cycle pretty quickly. Um, so I started drinking when I was 15 uh, in my small town in rural Iowa. And then, yeah, just had a, really, a lot of fun really quickly. Um, and by the time I was 20, yeah, like 21, things started going sort of wrong for me. And I was, you know, I was the only one having problems when we went out at, at night. And uh, yeah, just, it was, I feel like lucky to survive that part and lucky to have not really caused a ton of incredible damage to other people. Um, not that there wasn't, uh, some of that, but, um, but yeah, kind of just was finally got arrested enough times that the state said you go to rehab or you go to jail for six months. And oh, so the choice had been kind of taken out of your hands in, 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 in some ways. Yeah. Which, which felt unfair at the time. And I felt like, gosh, I'm too young for this, blah, blah, blah. All these things that I, I reasons I could think of that I shouldn't have to do it. And in retrospect, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. So yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, it, I'm, it was tough. It's been, it, it was really tough in the early years, but it was definitely better than six months in jail. But yeah, getting sober, getting cleaned up and then kind of getting some direction mo moving out here to Montana was the, the next step. Yeah. And the, um, so I had, I got a marketing degree in undergrad, but the final year of it, I was kind of not sure I wanted to do any of the, the jobs that I was seeing that I might be able to get when I graduated and saw an ad in the student newspaper and started writing a column for the student newspaper humor 
I'm really glad that stuff's not on the internet because it was, it's really dumb, awful stuff. But it's a once a week column. I'd write whatever I wanted. And, you know, by halfway through the year, people would sort of every once in a while stop me on campus or at the bar and say, Hey, I read your thing. That was super funny. Or they liked it in some way. So it was this beginning of getting feedback for a newspaper column. And I thought, Oh, columnist, that's like a job, you know? And I didn't know that that wasn't a full-time job that you, you, you know, no newspaper was paying someone to write one column a week um, and, you know, giving you 60 grand a year for that. But it kind of got me interested in journalism. And Montana was one of the grad programs I found that took people who didn't have an undergrad in journalism. Mm, so, yeah. and I don't remember at the time, you know, this is like 2001, 2002. I don't remember thinking much about that it was in Montana or any of the other reasons people would move to Montana, like mountains and um, beautiful scenery and the culture and everything. I just remember thinking, well, this, this will work. And I got into, I think I applied to four places and got into two of them and uh, chose Montana and was like, okay, let's try it. Yeah. And then you got here and seems like the mountains grabbed you pretty quickly. Yeah. I, um, so I was like, uh, let's see, March, I was probably about five, a little over five months into sobriety. So I was smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, this is like one of these things that you think will, that is helping you hang on to, you know, by, by that thread. So, mm-hmm. um, but I had, you know, met a couple people who took me just sort of on day hikes, you know, down in the Bitterroot or on Mount Sentinel and um, one backpacking trip up to Glacier. Uh, I never backpacked before. Um, spent one night, four of us in a three person tent and, you know, woke up, hiked up the top of, I think, Swift Current Lookout and the view up there. I, I saw a photo of myself, you know, this was 2000, yeah, like October, 2002, I think. Uh-huh. And it just, just blew my mind, you know, and I think it was this thing, something clicked where it was like, I had spent the last five months not knowing who I was or what I, you know, what I should do next because you build this whole identity around sort of partying and, or whatever, whatever that is. And, uh, I realized like, well, this is something, you know, going out into the mountains is something people do every weekend. Maybe I can yeah. do more of this. Um, and it just sort of started to snowball from there. And I would think too, like that first glacier trip or the, you know, these first few trips into the mountains, particularly when you're smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or whatever, can't like feel all that good physically. Although at that <laughs> point you probably don't know what feeling good physically is. Yeah. And then, you know, there's probably this self-reinforcing thing where like you're starting to make better life choices. You feel better on these outings. You could do more stuff. You could go for longer. Yeah. I could see how that, that could be very positively reinforcing over time pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I think of it as like, you know, when you start out, you're like, literally, I think that trip, I definitely wore jeans and like probably a cotton, I think I had like a cotton long sleeve t-shirt on. So you're wearing all cotton in the mountains. And I don't know if I even had hiking boots and, but you don't, if you don't know there's better gear, you're not that uncomfortable. You're just like, ah. Oh. but then later you think, you know, you start to get things that are comfortable and make, make things easier. And and you realize how hard it was when you had, when you were wearing jeans and had a horrible backpack and a big, heavy sleeping bag. So I think the same way physically, you know, and, um, but yeah, slippery slopes, you're right. I'm now I'm eating vegetables and all, all that crazy stuff. So <laughs> making good life choices, all yeah. those things Eats and kale. starting to, 
and starting to get some formal training in journalism and starting to do your own, own writing. And so, how, yeah, how does that kind of career in, in creative essentially start to kind of come to life? Yeah. I mean, um, when at the time I was there and I would assume it still is, I think, you know, the journalism school is like, I think the ideal that you go in there with is like, like if you worked for, if you graduated and worked for the Washington post, that's like, that's a good outcome. Like that's, that's the ideal outcome. And I think when I was there, I was, I was learning all these things and learning how to do, because I do such a great job of teaching, putting you in a position where you could do that. Um, So you get this, I get this incredible foundation of basics of editing. I think in my mind, when I started here, I thought I'd love to work for or write for like Rolling Stone. I took a magazine writing class my second year, yeah, second semester of my second year. So right before I graduated and the requirement for grad students is that you had to get published in order to pass the class. Okay. Um, wow. So I was like, Oh my God, how am I going to get published in Rolling Stone magazine? And I'm like, just this <laughs> lowly, you know, my publishing credits are like the Montana Kaiman and you know, almost nothing else. And, uh, a classmate said, you should try to write for Idaho magazine. They pay like $40 per article and they take pretty much anything. And I said, Oh, okay, great. <laughs> that sounds like a win. Yeah. So I had done a little road trip the previous summer where a friend and I like visited Hemingway's grave and catch went to craters of the moon national monument and uh, climbed Bora peak, the highest mountain in Idaho, mm-hmm. which was way beyond my fitness and skill level. Um, but we did it and I pitched them the, the story and they said, sure, well, that sounds great. We'll take it. You know, I got published and I got my $40 and that just a light bulb went on and it was like, wow, I could make a sort of a living writing about adventures or these things that I do outdoors on the weekends. And, you know, I didn't, didn't, my brain didn't do the math and go, okay, $40 per article. How many articles is that to make a living? Um, it's, it's quite a lot. So I think my first year freelance income was $40. The next year was like 150 and the next year was like 1800 bucks or something like that. So I left Montana in 2004. Um, and I worked at a couple different, really small, like suburban newspapers that didn't, I don't know if anyone was actually reading them, um, (laughs) over the next five years. And on the side, you know, I would go to work every day and think this is fine. I'm using my degree, but this is not what I want to do. I want to write for like outside magazine and backpacker and climbing. So I would pitch, I would write pitch letters, you know, and, and try to come up with article ideas. And from 2004 to like 2010 ish, I, like did not get into any of these major magazines, but I finally got something in like climbing magazine, I think 2011. So it took me that many years to, to figure out a way in. Yeah. A lot of grinding. What, what made you stick with it? I mean, you hear early on about, you know, stories like very famous books that have been rejected over a hundred times, like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, which has sold like millions of copies was rejected over a hundred times. And it becomes this sort of badge of honor american dream like olympic hopeful story that we we are such big fans of you know against all odds and like um so i think there's probably some romanticism in there but sure also you just want to do it and um along the way i was having like i was eventually getting smaller successes you know where i started to get articles published in the mountain gazette um if you remember that magazine so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Backpacker, but it was a cool magazine that I respected. And it was very legitimate for me to to have that in there. But 
yeah, I don't know. I've always been, I've always been a, a work harder, not smarter person, you know, and sure. eventually something, eventually things started to happen, but it was very slow for me. And I think that's maybe good because then when you're making mistakes early on, they're in front of a small audience and no one knows who you are, as opposed to like your first stories being published and the New York times, which sure. probably, probably doesn't happen to very many people, but well, yeah, I mean, along those lines, could you feel yourself getting better as you were, as you were moving through this process? I mean, getting some external validation, getting into better outlets closer to the space you want to be in. Yeah. But can you feel your, can you feel yourself getting better as a creator, as a writer? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think if you go to work and you think you're, you're congratulating yourself. It's probably a bad, bad way to start. Yeah, so totally. from no matter what point in your career, but uh, I, you know, um, 2011, I said collected a healthy amount of rejection letters and <laughs> was getting really good at pitching things to magazines that they didn't want to run. Um, so I just started my own blog, um, February, 2011 and was like, I'll just put stories that I think are funny or that I can make something out of on here. And I'll do that. I'm going to do one of these every week for, I don't know, a year or until something happens. And, um, it was, it was good timing. And within a few weeks, maybe like two or three months, I started seeing the traffic go up a little bit, like not, not a huge amount. Like it wasn't like a mega viral post, but it was like, there were people reading it. People were commenting, people were sort of sharing things on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And it, it was, yeah, it was validation that, you're kind of figuring out what people were uh, responding to. Right. Yeah. You have some sort of, uh, you know, however, maybe it's intuitive, maybe it's analytical, but you have some data starting to come in where you can sort of say, oh yeah, these sorts of things people like, they engage with. Basically. Yeah. And then um, a few months into the blog, I had um, Steve Casimiro, who has, who started and has run Adventure Journal for over a decade now. He reached out through a friend and said, Hey, I like some of your stuff that you're putting on your blog. What do you think about me also publishing it on my website, adventure journal, and I'll link back to your blog. So that was a huge validation because he yeah. was, you know, founding editor of bike magazine, editor of powder, you know, Na national geographic adventure. So that made me think, okay, I am kind of doing something right. And in, in turn, you know, having him publish my stuff led a lot of people to my, to my work. So it sort of was this big hand up from, from somebody who was very established. And that was extremely huge for me. And so speaking of your, your blog, Semirad, talk about when you first started doing those visuals. And I'd love to kind of understand how those ideas come to life. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the first thing I did was probably in like 2014, I did a flow chart that sort of went really viral for, for me, you know, not a huge, um, uh -huh. not breaking the internet, but like, really went around and I was like, it was just something I drew on a literally a sheet of printer paper in a coffee shop and then took a photo of and posted it. And it wasn't a lot of work for people to read it. And it was a joke or sort of a way, a story about, about humans. Um, and people liked them and liked to share them. Um, and it was easier than for a lot of people than getting into like a 1200 word blog entry or whatever. So I started doing those and then I started drawing stuff on Instagram, you know, on like little sheets of graph paper or whatever, um, just sort of simpler charts that were squares. And in 2016, I decided to buy an iPad to make it sort of more professional. And you mentioned sort of, yeah, it's, it's easier for somebody to get into and quickly kind of consume and get versus a 1200 word blog post. But 
at the same time, like to get it right. I mean, there's a, there's a ton happening in your posts that you know, tell us about the process of actually making it happen. I'm sure some of them happen like super quick and then others are maybe a, a grind. Yeah. And some of them don't, don't do very well. And <laughs> I, like a very small handful of them do really well and go around the internet or whatever. Um, I try to create a little bit of space in my life where I'm not looking at the internet or my phone or whatever. And oftentimes that's on long runs, um, long trail runs or runs around the city or just walking the dog. And I'll think of something and just have a note about it. Like a note would be maybe running is so simple jokes about why it's actually not simple. And then later I'll come back and I guess I approach it mostly as a writer because everything I do has words in it because I can't draw very well. So it's more of like a sort of visual story, I guess. So it's, there's a lot of writing in it. Um, and then I'll, I'll sit down and try to draw the thing and make sure it looks as, as good or as clear as I can do it um, and make it as simple as possible for people to understand because there are tons of different ways you can actually visualize data, but very few of them are understood by adults who are not taking like college classes right. in that subject. So you can't really make things too complicated, I've learned. Um, and then basically I show it to my wife, who's also a writer and editor, and uh, she will say, yeah, I think that I think that'll work. Or, yeah, that's really funny. And then I'll say, okay, thank you. And then uh, and put it online. So it's not an extremely scientific process. We'll be back to our conversation with Brendan Leonard after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Build it, bike it, ski it, hike it. Come be a part of the process for creating a new and better Marshall Mountain as the city embarks on a journey to bring the beloved Missoula Mountain into public ownership. Parks and Recreation will host a community celebration at Marshall Mountain on September 12th from 1 to 4 p.m. Residents will have a chance to tour the site and learn how to become involved with the planning for the future Marshall Mountain Recreation Area. Check it out. Hi, I'm Nora Sachs. I'm the host and reporter of Richest Hill, a podcast from Montana Public Radio, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with writer Brendan Leonard about the years of work it took him to become an overnight success. I was reading one of your blog posts. It mentioned, you know, the privilege of, of leisure time. And, you know, privilege is a concept that I think is, is, it's not necessarily taken on new meaning, but it's taken on new salience in the last several months. You know, and ideas around leisure, ideas around conservation, ideas around access, you know, I think people are thinking about these things in a way they they, they maybe hadn't thought of before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how have those thoughts, you know, as one who who sort of adventures and writes about those activities, uh, how have you kind of been grappling with this uh, this new salience right now? If you have any sort of perspective, you have to realize, you know, that you are tremendously privileged, even things you don't think are privileged, you know, um, which is which has been an education for me over the past couple of years too. You know, I can go running at night, you know, and and maybe that's a situation where my wife and other women are not comfortable doing uh, in a city or on a trail or whatever, not to mention if you're a person of color in in certain places in in America or the world, you know, 
how, how differently that affects you. Um, and I also think, I guess lately I'm thinking about it in the words of my friend, Alex, who's the editor of adventure cyclist magazine, you know, does the world need to hear more from a 40 year old white guy right now? Right. And right. I'm trying to make art that is, that is sort of universal to people who are in the outdoors, as opposed to just talking about my experience, um, trying to lean that way for sure. It's a challenge. But things like, you know, conservation, I had not really thought about it as like this, this white Eurocentric concept. And it certainly is one. And we go play in these public lands and that's sort of a, a, a wacky social construction that, 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 that white people created, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, you're now seeing people like acknowledging, you know, that the lands were, you know, ancestral lands of, of mm-hmm. Native American people and First Nation peoples in Canada. Um, and it, that's, that's helpful, I think. But yeah, it's, you're, you're kind of going, oh, Yosemite National Park. Like, oh, wow, this isn't really okay. This is a, yeah. not, it's not like it was just created one day by white people. I am hopeful because I think I see things happening that that are leading us in in that direction as opposed to just, you know, ignoring it, continuing to ignore it. You know, Um, I think about, you know, I read People's History of the United States when I was 20, I think, Mm -hmm. sitting on the porch of a house in college, smoking cigarettes, reading and just being appalled by all these horrible things that had happened. But I think it took me, gosh, another like 19 years to start going okay, what can I do? What can I actually do to put my money where my mouth is instead of just feeling bad? So working to, to do those things and do them in the right way um, is, is definitely important because I guess in the adventure industry, quote unquote, or the outdoor industry where I've worked, it is, you know, it is at some point, if you want to be cynical about it, you can say, geez, all I do is help, you know, rich people go on vacation. And mm-hmm. it shouldn't, shouldn't be like that. You know, it's like, yeah, if you do, if all you talk about is resort skiing and ice climbing, there are high barriers to entry in those sports. But a friend of ours pointed out that outside is not not necessarily on top of a 14,000 foot peak or or rock climbing. You know, it can be a city park um, and it can be people having a picnic. And that's true, too. So I think about it in those terms as well. Um, these like municipal parks and how great of a thing they are. Yeah, And then you think about this sort of continuum of of the way people are engaging with the outdoors and, you know, it, there's, there's inspiration and aspiration. You know, I read, I read your, 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 your post about the Don wall a, a few years back and, you know, in many ways, like, yeah, that's this privileged activity of these elite athletes, but at the same time, if it inspires people to get out and, and expand their own realm of possibilities, whether it's at the city park or in their home gym or whatever, that's important too. And that has a lot of value. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the, that's the essence of inspiration to me. You know, it's like, sure. We follow really uh, high achieving athletes, but we don't sit down and go, okay, now I'm going to climb the Dawn wall. You know, you right, do, right. you do your own, your own Dawn wall in, in Tommy Caldwell's words. You know, mm-hmm. I was talking to my dad the other day and he said, I am still working on cleaning out the garage. And I said, dad, I think you've been working on cleaning out the garage for years. I believe the garage is your Don wall at this point. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I feel like I have a Don wall everywhere I look around this place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. So let's, um, 
let's sort of just pivot to you came back to Missoula and, and came back over this past summer and you talk about that decision and then, wow, moving in the midst of a pandemic and trying to re-enter or trying to enter a community under those conditions. That's got to be a pretty bizarre experience. Yeah. I mean, for me, coming back here in the last five years and short visits was I have to work to separate do I like the town or do I just have extreme nostalgia for that time in my life when it was probably one of the hardest but most uh, most important times in my life? So it's a weird thing. You know, I'm, I'm 41 and I, I, I often have to go, do I miss that or do I just miss being young? You know, we, we wanted some place where we could have just a little bit more space because my wife and I were working out of a 850 square foot half duplex in, in Denver. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's the awareness of if you move to Montana, you are those people from Colorado who are moving to Missoula and, you know, you know, like you're, you're going to be that person to somebody, you know, most of the people we talk to are not, not bad about that, but occasionally, you know, you're talking to somebody in the DMV or, you know, um, you know, well, and then right now, like with COVID, you got all this, sure. you know, there's all this other sort of t- territorialism that's happening. That's, right. You know, I can feel it in myself and I don't like it, but I understand it. Right. And so I'm in a position, you know, like I've, my life is built on leaving places that, you know, or whatever, going in the new place, the next best place. And one of my favorite sayings I've ever heard, I don't know who said this, but it was, it's, this place started going to 15 minutes after I got here. Um, <laughs> exactly. And I, I think about that a lot, but it's like, what is it, that Groucho Marx quote? The I would never be a member of any club that would have me as a member or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but, you know, it's like people who live here know what an amazing place it is. And I think being conscious to be here, not, not, uh, not make it a worse place and eventually make it a better place, but in a way that is not feeling like an outsider trying to change things, you know, like, why don't you have more yoga studios, you know, or whatever. I'm like learning to be a part of the community in, in, in a positive way and, you know, helping, helping move it forward, but not also not like, not sort of bringing what your idea of a city should be to a, to a city that doesn't want it, you know, or, or right. like has much better things to offer that you can't see because you're, you have blinders on. So speaking of that, in our last few minutes, I want to sort of get a sense for what's next for you. Um, you know, you write a lot about the importance of the grind and the importance of sort of just doing the work of figuring out how to get inspired. And, you know, how do you, how do you stay inspired and what's inspiring you? Like what's, what's kind of the, the next thing and how is that connected to, to what you've been doing? Yeah. I mean, most of the times the inspiration is not wanting to get a real job. Um, so that's good inspiration. I've been trying to avoid that for as long as I can remember. Well, congratulations. You know, I mean, it's (laughs) no, it's, uh, I think, you know, you, you start to think about where your best stuff comes from and it's not like, Hey, this will sell or this will get clicks. You know, it's more like I always try to try to grasp what's universal about our experience. So I, one of the biggest posts I've had this year was about, um, it was a very long illustrated post about anxiety. And I feel like that's just sort of the feeling of our times. I don't know if it's 2020 or generally in the last five years, but I feel like a lot of people are dealing with that stuff. And a lot of people don't see people talking about those things. And it's when you do talk about it, it gives them, um, comfort to feel like they're not alone. 
if you can make one person feel less alone with your week, I think that's a pretty good way to make a living, you know, and a pretty good way to spend your time. Um, and if you can make a hundred people feel less alone, that's, that's even better. Brendan, that's an inspiration. Thank you for that work, for the attitude you bring to it. Thanks for being a part of Missoula. I'm excited to meet you in person someday. Um, it's been fun learning more about your work and, uh, yeah, thanks for, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Justin. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer, BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.